For October 11th, 2021, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 693, The Bondiest Thing to Do. It's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. I'm Matt Rather, and I'm here with my smart, funny friend, Pete Fenzel. Pete, how many hands? <laughs> well, I was going to say six, but we're not <laughs> going to talk about venom and carnage this oh, week, okay, unfortunately. No. no, not. Definitely not. Yeah. Uh well, uh, anyway, what a what a great <laughs> like season! Well, I like that pregnant pause. It was almost like it's like it's like a thing we could have done, and there's a lot of subtext of like, well, there is oh, like, you know, I, did they want it? Did I want it? What's going on? Did I want to um, go down the road about how I don't like scary things because they scare me? And Venom is like Venom is on the line, you know, where it's where it's. Um, I don't know the, the, uh, the, the, like the jump scares and things like that. The horror movie elements are not like the whole point and not as intense as like a real horror movie, but still there's yeah. enough of it that it makes it kind of unpleasant for me. Cause I just, I just hate all of that, that whole genre of stuff. I don't find it, you know, I don't find it like exciting or fun. Um, so, you know, we're, we're going the, the, all the, the, you know, greatest monsters are within. And that's why we're talking about season two of Ted Lasso. No, we're not talking about season two of Ted Lasso. So in, much the same, in much the same way that Venom insists on its existence, I think Ted Lasso has a sort of pace to it that should say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't require everybody to watch all the episodes immediately to be able to discuss it. So we're going to put it off for a week so some of our panelists can get a chance to catch up. And so you have a chance to catch up because yeah. it's a nice show. It so, is right, and it's yes. right, and it goes at a decent goes at a decent pace. A lot of processing time. That's what we need for. Uh, that's what we. That's what we need for Ted Lasso. Uh, so there's no time. Uh, there's no time for Ted Lasso, and there's n- <laughs> no time for Venom. Pete, what do we do? Do we just die? I don't think there's time for that either. I don't oh, think we no. have time for anything right now. Would you say there's <laughs> no time to die? <laughs> should this should this movie title have a comma in it? Oh, this this is what I want. I mean, and here's the next hour. Okay, so let's <laughs> okay. you know spoilers. James Bond. Spoiler alert for spoiler alert for the grammatical the the deep grammatical analysis of the title <laughs> of the James Bond movie. Um, no time to die. Uh, yeah. So, so I, I thought that this, this was, I think, wonderful, right? Like, like, uh, so to everything, Pete, there is a season and a time yeah, right. to every purpose under heaven, a, yep. a time to be born and a time to die. And so. No. No time to die. No. <laughs> in some in some sense, right? Like the the implicit claim I, made by the title is that there are proper and improper times to die, right? There are, and this is not one of them. Uh, this is not one of them. This is not a a time to die. Uh, a, another way to look at it is, Pete, how how busy are you? I'm so busy, man. I got so much stuff on my plate. Do, I got to put together a craft project tomorrow for a municipal scarecrow festival. Oh my god, that's Pete. That's I, you probably don't even have have uh, time to eat dinner, huh? 
And barely. I had some reheated chicken and dumplings out of a ceramic bowl while watching episode two of the Foundation series. Wow. Okay. So, so, so you you would describe yourself as time constrained, is what I'm hearing. I would. There are certain limitations. Yes. I mean, over the scope of psychohistory, you know, there's there's lots of time, but in my own scope, it's much narrower. At the moment, yeah. At the moment, you're sort of tied. <laughs> got a time constraint. So, yes. so would you say that that uh, given all the demands, the many demands on you, that you have time to die? No, I no. would even suggest I would even suggest that scientists have found that dying takes more time than being alive. Uh, so, like, nobody has time to die. Oh, God. So, so Pete, uh, in general, things that are that that are uh, sorry, no, and seen. Uh, Pete, in general, things that that take a while are said to take time, and things yes. that are very quick are said to take no time. Uh, yes. Given that, uh, given that rubric. How quickly, you know, how how much time does it take for one to die? Well, I mean, given that I appreciated that there were subtitles in this movie because I don't have time to learn French, ah. that I probably also don't have time to. I would say two hours and forty five minutes. <laughs> That's no time at all, Pete. It takes <laughs> no time to no time to die. Yes. Uh, all right. Uh, new scenario, uh, Pete. I'm a dungeon master. Okay. Like always, you find, <laughs> right. thank you so much for co- coming out to all of us. <laughs> this, this, this been, very great. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a member of the DM community, and okay. we we uh, you know sometimes we don't have uh, time in the heat of a game to you know roll for abilities or to you know roll a saving throw or some or something like that right right you might just have something auto pass or auto fail just because you want to move the story along and it's not that impactful yeah so so right so like in 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 those situations how would you describe my situation as a you know as a person who might need to roll uh, but just given the hustle, the hustle and the bustle of the ongoing interaction can't roll. Uh, w- w- would you say I have time or perhaps? So I would describe this as between punnery and wit, but, <laughs> but I think you have no time to die. And if it's a death saving throw, they have no time to die. Uh, no time to dice, as it were. Um, well, no, no that's times no to dice. Do you no, have to pluralize both? <laughs> that's a, the correct plural. No, no yeah. times to dice is uh, no time to dice is actually guys and dolls based on the short story of the short stories of Damon Runyon. Um, this movie is to its degree about a floating craft game. <laughs> The oldest um, established permanent floating crap game in, in south of Kamchatka. Yeah. So, uh, so in in this movie, uh, Rami Malek plays Rami uh, uh, Freddie Mercury Malek plays yes. a a gardener. Rami, Mister Robot Malek, yes, Mister Robot Malek um, yeah. plays a gardening enthusiast, and <laughs> but what he gardens is death. He gardens poison. He's a poison yeah. gardener. I don't. I don't oh, totally man. understand the whole. I don't totally understand the whole relationship to like plants, given that he is uh the the antagonist in this movie is a like a chemical weapons manufacturer, is like a a fanatical chemical weapons manufacturer who steals and then mass produces a um. Uh, biological agent and something 
that's like targeted at particular people's DNA. And the, the, um, when, when the, one of the great, of many great kind of lighthearted moments in it, Daniel Craig and I think it's Ray Fiennes as M are talking about, um, what's going on. And, uh, he says like, so, well, what, you know, it's basically, what are the stakes of this movie, James? And he's like, well, it's, uh, you know, uh, deaths, deaths of million societies. We know it, freedom, democracy, you know, everything, everything we hold dear, all our, our dearly held British values. And Ray Fine said something like, ah, so the usual then. Yeah. The usual. <laughs> yes. It's the usual. Well, yeah. And then, and uh, sorry, just to, to wrap up no. this thought, like the idea, the idea that like very often, in the Marvel movies, kind of third act stakes are manufactured with sort of a bigger and a bigger and bigger bang, you know, mm-hmm. more CGI punching, bigger CGI punching <laughs> like that's, uh, you know, and then like uh, then the the end of Endgame with like the multi more CGI punching to the farthest horizon in every direction to the to the farthest horizon. And then that that's like how we do Marvel movies. And, you know, we've talked about stakes a little bit. And like the, the way we've arrived at describing them is, you know, higher stakes is not necessarily like make the fate of the world hang in the balance. The higher stakes is to make you care more. And I, I think that like w- one thing I'll say about this, this achievement um in in Bond films because I think it's it's probably one of my favorites of the it does uh, it does a lot of things well and we can talk about what they are but like it's probably one of my favorites of the last handful um the the uh certainly better than Spectre um I like Skyfall a lot but I like Skyfall aesthetically you know maybe more than I was moved by Skyfall um I like I liked the photography of Skyfall this this one I don't know I I was in there and I felt like uh I felt involved in in the film and like I think the achievement here is that in in like framing this as Daniel Craig's last Bond movie and how do we do you know how do we like do something that is is worth that is worthy of that like it's it's a little bit like, okay, well, how do we care more? You know, how do we, how do we make people authentically care more rather than just kind of care more on paper? Because, you know, I don't know, but untold, untold millions of lives hang in the balance or, or, you know, some, some nonsense like that. So, uh, I don't know. I, I, uh, I, uh, enjoyed this film a lot. I, I, how, how'd you feel? Oh, I love this movie. I would agree that. This movie has a strong case for being one of the better Bond films. I Cer- think. Certainly one of yeah. the best of the of the Craig era. Yeah. And I mean, if, if it weren't for the fact that that a Casino Royale came with this huge measure of relief that they were able to bring Bond to an interesting and fun and cool place. Yeah. Right. Like and just the fact that it was you know reinventing Bond in this style felt like a new thing that in and of itself is impressive. If you don't credit all of the subsequent movies with that core innovation, then I think it is the best um, of the new ones. But uh, but obviously it's building on the previous elements of the story. And one of the big parts of the story being the exploration of a certain dimension of Bond's character that's really present in the books and hasn't really been as present in the non-Timothy Dalton uh, Bond movies, which is Bond's kind of um, uh, woundedness, mm. right? Uh, the sort of the sadness behind his blue eyes that has sort of uh, been I wouldn't say it's not bottled up because he isn't a sort of uh, he's not really a clench release sort of guy. <laughs> he's sort of always doing both. Uh, yeah. But but just the degree to which 
Bond's, especially Bond's hedonistic behavior, isn't in, I think, the most interesting and and authentic interpretations of the character. His hedonism isn't a reflection of his earnest and sincere joy in drinking and being out and about with women. It's a uh, it's a mask he wears because his real motivation is his sort of uh, devotion to duty that has arisen from his sort of grizzled exposure to extreme violence. Mm-hmm. Right. That it's sort of like I don't really have anything else left. Um, but, you know, that's normal because I'm from the generation where nobody has anything else left. Right. It's it's uh, of course, Frodo's the one who takes the ring to Mordor. Everyone else would die. Right. Um, it's this sort of British wartime mentality of, you know, pip pip. Here we go. Um, you know, my whole school class is gone. Uh, and that's the sort of feel, I think, of Bond. Uh, and, that's and, a really and course, that's a really world. I mean, given when it came out, this makes sense. But that's a really kind of Second World War. That's like a mid 20th century um, sort of mentality. And and I I guess I it's interesting to see uh, that it's been preserved, you know, to the to the present day, given given so much change in the world. Well, that's what. Yeah, exactly. Right. So because um, of course the bond books are a product of the second you know the second world war the immediacy of the cold war and all that other stuff um and who and of course ian fleming was in the navy in the naval and Fle- uh, but, but we're so far away from ian fleming at this point so i will say i love this movie this movie felt like it cashed the check that was written in casino royale with what if we made bond into this 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 dialectical man right this this continent but dialectical man who isn't like Steven Seagal, where it's like, oh, he looks, he watches the gas station and his family gets blown up by the mafia and now he's out for vengeance, right? And it's all has this sense of like, you know, oh That's no. That's a good I, title. That's a good title, Pete. I don't should <laughs> the Steven Seagal movie I away. just ate a whole bunch of gas station hot dogs and now I'm gonna poop all over the screen for two minutes. <laughs> sure. Which is just emotionally what happens where it's like, they killed your family. <laughs> And that's all the like guns and karate chops and ninja kicks and stuff. But but the Daniel Craig Bond is more controlled because obviously he's on a mission. And at the times when he's good, I think it is the choreography of his self-control that is particularly interesting to watch. Um, and this movie cashes out in a big way, in a lot of big ways, the choreography of James Bond's self-control and interlaces it with a variety of other dialectics. That are both kind of meta cinematic, meta historical, um, and uh, and you know, and, and political, right? Um, in multiple different dimensions. Yeah. Um, and I, I just was kind of fascinated by it, right? And uh, and I mean, I liked I liked Skyfall, right? I like Skyfall more than most. Although I do love the theory that Sean Connery was supposed to be in it, and the fact that he wasn't is part of why it didn't quite land with a lot of people. Um, but yeah, but we see Bond die, right? And we don't see Bond die in a mission that is fundamentally different from all his other missions. Not really, right? No. Like, yeah, yeah sure. He no, has wait, his wife we see Bond, we, we, Yeah, that's interesting. We see Bond choose to die in that particular yeah. way. Do you remember uh, Dangerous Minds with Michelle Pfeiffer writing up on the, on the blackboard? <laughs> we choose to die. <laughs> what's the most class? What's the most important word in this sentence? Uh, well, you know, it's choice because you always have a, a choice. We choose to, 
to die. And then the, the principal comes in. We choose to die. What the, what is this tomfoolery going on in here? I don't remember the film very well. I've, it's been a while <laughs> since, since I've seen it. I want to say that I'm on the, I'm on the Annie Potts side of the, uh, Dangerous Minds fandom debate, but I actually <laughs> never watched either of them and don't know if she has the same scene in her TV show. Um, but I do love Annie Potts and I love Michelle Pfeiffer too. They're great. So that, um, so that like, you know, this is, yeah, it's absolutely one of those things where like, you know, he would make a 500 foot high dive off of a cliff into a, you know, pristine lagoon and you'd see the explosions going on over his head outside of the water and, you know, he'd swim and everyone would be would be you know uh shocked that he'd lost and he'd be you know pull himself up behind them and you know go uh does anyone here like a martini or something <laughs> you know something like yeah. that it's like uh wow that got a little hot uh there's that something um there's a there there were some good bond one-liners it really blew his mind was you know probably it was such a long setup too like the only reason the only reason the henchman with a fake eyeball is in this movie other than i guess the sort of blofeld reveals and stuff is so that he can give that one liner when he kills him by blowing his eyeball up inside his head oh it's so great it's so great um, because I felt like there were, there's definitely one moment in this movie where Bond, this movie has a lot of te- uh, references to other Bond movies, tons of them, right? Because it's like a, it's a sort of summary text of a lot of, and commentary on a lot of other stuff. But there's definitely a moment where Bond is in the jungle, right? And he like rises up carrying a big machine gun. And it's like, oh, Bond is going commando, right? Yeah. Like literally like Arnold Schwarzenegger, commando predator, right? In this movie. And he certainly does it with the one liners while killing people. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty great. I mean, okay. I guess I should, should ground. I'm excited to talk about this movie and I don't want to just blab, blab, blab. So I want to ground the conversation a little bit for a moment Mm. and I'll ground it in, as I mentioned, a dialectic, right? And I've been thinking about the concept of dialectic a little bit lately. Um, and maybe you can, before we dive into it, give me a little bit of a sense of, um, how you see, this sort of way of thinking, because I often get dialectics and dichotomies confused with each other, right? The idea that like something is one thing or the other thing, or there are sort of two competing ideas and, and kind of one or two like opposite things that are kind of in in, in a in, in juxtaposition. But I had heard someone refer to Heidegger as a dialectical philosopher, and that sort of made something click. It's like, oh, so in these sort of philosophical dialogues where different characters are purporting to have different viewpoints. I had sort of thought of these things in the past as we should assume that in most of these discussions, the philosopher is 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 really talking from the perspective of either one of the characters or some third character who's smarter than both of them. And uh, and you're supposed to find that perspective in order to get at them. But then also some talk about that we've been having recently about how we should not attribute the words in the mouths of characters Mm. strictly to the authors of the books. Right. Sure. Uh, because they do in the sense of like the author does not necessarily intend to mean the things that their characters say, because the reason a character might say something might be to articulate the character's perspective. Right. And, yeah. and that isn't just notable because the character is fictional. That is notable because the character is in disagreement with other characters that have different perspectives. And those perspectives are adjudicated in a variety of ways. Sure. Right? It, it's it's uh, even more pronounced in, for example, the Canterbury Tales. Right. Okay. Where in the general prologue to the Canterbury Tales, the narrator 
creator of the Canterbury Tales is named Geoffrey Chaucer, you know, but right. he's not Geoffrey Chaucer. Like he's, he's very, the narrator is very impressed with, you know, like the pardoner or the summoner, you know, with, a, with a lot of these, um, institutional toadies, you know, these sort of sellouts and, and, uh, uh the partner, especially like the, I think the, like the, the richness of the, you know, all of his, um, below possessions and clothes and stuff like that. I don't know. It's been, it's been a while, but these, these people, there are people in the Canterbury Tales, General Prologue, who are, who are, um, described in really glowing terms and you know it's a little work to do it but you realize after you look at it that the author is sort of throwing shade you know Mm -hmm. uh it's and it's more it's it's a little more complicated when the narrator has the same name as the author like in the dark tower yeah, of the poem. But like in the, you know, in the, the example I think I used the last time this came up is like I had, I had, uh, someone, uh, like an after school drama teacher in high school who used to say, well, everyone will just have to screw our courage to the sticking place. Shakespeare said that. And that's what, that's what we should all aspire to do. It's like, I guess Shakespeare wrote that line, but Shakespeare put that line in, in the mouth of Lady Macbeth. She was talking about killing someone, killing your, <laughs> killing a house guest, like, right, you know, yeah. who all, who only wanted to sleep in the guest bedroom safe and sound all night, you know, uh, that like these things, these things have a context and they're not, they don't kind of produce meaning in, in, uh, in a straightforward way. So yeah, when I guess when people, when people in, what people in Bond movies kind of talk about is like, uh, well, it's to, to a certain extent, there's a great deal of, of 24, uh, 24 discourse of, uh, uh, Bowerian discourse, yes. Bowerian um, discourse of, about whether we don't we, have time for right now, but I'll let yeah, no, it's, yeah. Well, a Bowerian discourse is a discourse about whether we have time for it or, <laughs> or, uh, whether we don't have time for it. Like whether, whether, you know, whether we need to live up to our highest ideals or whether we're going to, uh, whether we're going to, uh, uh hook the jumper cables up to someone's nuts. And that's like, uh, uh, you know that's a Bowerian discourse, and actually, there there is a, a strictly speaking Bowerian discourse in in this because uh, the the bureaucrat M's M's uh, uh, the administrator right uh, says to to James after an interrogation gets a little rough says like you broke the first rule in the first rule book of the first you know. Um, <laughs> And if that's really, uh, that's really the first rule in the first, the, the first rule book, someone's, someone's gotta, someone's gotta tell, um, someone's gotta tell Jack Bauer. But sorry, dichotomy, dialectic, and then I would say dualism is like a, is like a third thing to, to talk about. So, uh, uh, a dichotomy is a partitioning is like a, a set that's partitioned into two parts, right? Right. So a, a dichotomy is there's two kinds of people in the world. Right. Right, right, right. Um, dualism is that like there, dualism think like the model, philosophical model to think about is like yin and yang, right? There's a, there is a, 
a sort of nurturing principle and an aggressive principle, um, or a kind of a, a surrounding principle and a going out in the world. Yeah. And two dragons know. fighting over a pearl. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and sorry, I could not ride on both and and be one Pete. Long I stood and looked at one Pete's dragon as long as I could to where it swiveled into the clouds, and then took the other as just as green and having perhaps better <laughs> scales because it was shiny and wanted uh, a treasure. But as for that, the riding there had ridden them really about the same. And both that morning, equally late. No, I'm saying uh, dualism is a, is um, two, uh, two dualism okay so so if dichotomy is there's two kinds of people in the world dualism is we're not so different you and i yeah uh, right to take to take up james bond i actually wish there were I, w- I wish i could do them all with metaphor from from uh from james bond but the um you know, uh, there's a, there are kind of these principles that seem opposed, though each one contains a seed of the other within it, and they exist in kind of a, pr- a productive, a harmonious tension, right? A productive tension, uh, with one another, like, uh, like dew upon a spider web glistening in the early morning sun, right? And that's how, that's how the universe is composed. And then I, you know, dialect, dialectic is that, um, you know, there's an idea, uh, there's an idea in the world. It's challenged by another idea, um, and defeated by the other. It's toppled by the other idea. But oh, in- okay. instead of the other idea becoming, um, uh, the new idea, right? Instead of, instead of, uh, you know, uh, you're the new dictator. Hello. Welcome. You're the new dictator. It forms a, a synthesis, right? Like that's right, the, right. that's the idea that there's, that there is a, in the kind of the struggle between the idea and the counter idea, uh, the, the anti idea, if you will, right? Like something new is produced. Uh, so it's a, it's a model of, it, it's a model of kind of cyclical progress. And it, and it's actually a model is a, whereas the, the first two modes are, are essentially conservative, right? Um, because they describe a system that is, in stasis, even if the stasis is kind of kinetic, uh, as in dualism, you know, that the, the, the psychedelic, uh, yin and yang, um, uh, swirly, swirly, uh, symbol, you know, spinning around, right? In your psychedelic, uh, cartoons. Um, the, the dialectical one is actually the, the one that has a model of progress. You know, uh, because it has a model of something other than coming, coming into, uh, conformance with the truths that are already, um, you know, that, that have, that have long, that have long existed and, and are unchangeable. Anyway, for, for what it's worth, just cause you asked, that's, that's how I would characterize those, those three different kind of forms of dealing with, uh, <laughs> on the one hand X and on the, on the other hand, Y does that get you somewhere useful in terms of what yeah. you're in terms of where you're headed? Definitely. So, so here's what I think is, here's one way you can look at no time to die. Um, and I guess we could go with it. I don't even, the thing is, I don't remember what scene it was where this, because there's so many scenes 
that are like this. I mean, I, okay. So I guess I guess the Downton Abbey moment. I'll put aside the Downton Abbey for a moment and more directly address what you just said. Well, I, have a, so, I have a problem. I have a, I have a problem with the, there being a Downton Abbey moment in this movie. But like, let's. Uh, yeah, we can let, talk about that. Yeah, after, stick, a, after stick a pin in that. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that makes this movie interesting is that if you were to spread out dichotomy, dialectic, and dualism. Um, or not in that order, you put them in dichotomy, dualism, dialectic. If you were to spread those things out and then you were to try to arrange on a pin board uh. the different characters in this movie, such as like Bond versus X, Bond versus Y, Bond versus Z, you would not arrive, I think, when the movie is starting and you know the premise of the movie at the conclusion that you arrive at when the movie is over. That I think that the what are the dichotomies, what are the dialectics and what are the dualisms that are being adjudicated uh, are is, ends up being different because of developments in character and plot over the course of the movie. Uh, most notably, I think you go into the movie thinking that the dualism is Bond and Spectre. Right. Yep. That you that you think the dualism that this is going to be a sequel to Spectre, and that you have, uh, and it's of course, you know, MI6 and Spectre are like Inspector Gadget and Doctor Claw. Uh-huh. Right. They're like uh, they're like control and chaos and get smart. They're the good spies and the evil spies, and they're you know two sides of the same coin. Right. It's going to be Ernst Blofeld who is the dualist with with Bond, and that turns out not to be the case. Right. Um, because. Uh, what you really see is somebody who's trying to kill both of them, right? And, and uh, for unrelated reasons, it ends up being a bait and switch, right? Uh, that's compli- related to the plot in complicated ways. But Christoph Waltz is in this as Ernst Blofeld, the head of Spectre, and of course is, you know, catch hatches a sort of evil plan that doesn't work out. But he ends up being, you know, a victim of the real villain, who is, of course, uh, Remy, Mr. Robot, Freddie Mercury, Malik. Um, Gardening enthusiast. Yeah, gardening enthusiast or horticulturalist. Here's the here's the catch: Nazi scientist, mm. right? So that's that. I think I'm getting a little chill saying it because that for me is kind of what cracks this movie is that Remy Malik in this movie is a Nazi scientist. Oh, that's interesting. He and 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 that and and we'll go through it, right? So you think that it's going to be about spies versus spies? It's not. It's about you know, the the Bond guy and and he's a supervillain, right? Spectre, I mean, they're bad, but they're they're like diplomatic, right? <laughs> you know, um, Remy Malik is like a supervillain on the order of one of the worst Bond movies, sure. right? Like one of the bad ones where it's just like, oh, we need to stop things from happening. He's almost on the order of a Marvel villain. You know, he's almost on he's on the order of the villain of Kingsman, the Secret Service, right, where he's a sort of the stakes of what he's trying to do are are so far beyond what the spies are interested in doing. Uh. Right. But it's something that James Bond has also done many, many times. Right. Which is save the world from and also not just James Bond, but everybody else who's been James Bond, but been called something else like Jack Bauer. Right. Is like, oh, he's going to release a secret toxin, poison, and he's going to – and the thing about him is it's 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 coded to your DNA, and they mentioned that it could be a weapon of mass destruction that could be used to kill everybody with certain phenotypical – phenotypically expressed genetic markers. So you sure. could kill all the people in the world with dark skin, right? But they don't come out and say it, right? They don't come out and say, oh – Well, right? he does. Like, does doesn't he, Remy Malik say that to the new 007, um, who I did, – did we learn her name – uh, over the course of the movie, or is she just the new double of seven who is black and who, who oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, no, d- me is her name. 
Uh, no me. Oh, we did. Yeah. I, did you get that from IMDb or did you get that from the movie? <laughs> because no, I don't no, remember. no. She goes by 007 in the movie. In and the that's movie, for reasons. Yeah. yeah so, that, so I'm losing. I'm losing track of it. But, sorry, yes, sorry, yeah. but what I'm saying doesn't he doesn't he even say like it's not him. Oh, who says it? We the, could the 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 other Nazi scientist. Oh, the the scientist scientist. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The, so mu- like mu- the, the mustache scientist, not the junior the, Bengalev. Says yeah, uh, the uh, says you know we could wipe we could wipe out your entire race, right? Yeah. And I you know I think that like the the literal um, text is the the race of humanity, you know, but it right. it has very chilling, uh, you know, being being said by a Nazi scientist to a black woman that it, it has a really chilling kind of aspect oh yeah uh aspect to it so yes the the so, yeah, yes so yeah so the purity uh the purity of the race and the nazi scientist yeah Pete, yeah continue so, so, okay so yeah so as i said you think the dualism is going to be good spies and evil spies but what it really ends up being is axis and allies mm-hmm. right and it ends up being like man ever since the nazis have sort of faded into history it's been harder and harder to find good movie villains and what this movie really does is reinvent and recontextualize Contextualize and reestablish Nazis as villains, right. but not with the aesthetic of Nazis, right? Which is important. No, with a um, really, with a really good kind of brutalist, like even kind of Japanese, you know, Tatami mat. Uh, yeah. you know, low, low table tea drinking kind of aesthetic with the, yeah, like, uh, the, the, um, you know, very, very austere, uh, poured concrete brutalism. It really, it really combines. I mean, the, the, um, the, the island, the island lair is in a disputed zone between Japan and Russia. And it seems like the aesthetics, the design, the designer really took that to heart in, <laughs> you know, uh, doing the interior design. Yeah of the evil lair it looked both like it looked like a it looked like it was maybe inside of a volcano even though it wasn't right it sort of like had that little bit of that feel to it but but no yes the whole brutalism thing and also don't forget the clear blue-eyed square-jawed political appointee alt-right guy who is secretly you know and who is it's not mentioned that he is but it's like oh he's a nazi too yeah right these are all the sort of different faces of nazi we have our sort of we have our reverse uh Werner von braun yeah. Right. Who is the like defecting scientist, except he defects to the Nazis rather right. than from the Nazis. Right. Um, and then we have this sort of mastermind genocidal, you know, deeply, deeply disturbed to the point of inhumanity, scarred face villain who in all sorts of movies would be ostensibly a Nazi. But in this one is a sort of ethnically ambiguous Zen philosopher because the aesthetic has to be different. And that and we'll get to why. Right. But that ends up being the switch. Now, for the dichotomy, you you kind of think that. Well, okay. So for for the dichotomy and the dialectic, the movie presents you with an old 007 and a new 007. Uh The old 007 is a white man and the new 007 is a black woman. And you would kind of expect once they've been introduced that the movie is going to be about a dialectic between the two of them. Right. Where they're in conflict, right, where old Bond does things the old fashioned way and new Bond does things in the new way. Right. Or new double. And then and they're going to have and I've seen so many movies where it's like and Bond has to realize that he can't be a chauvinist anymore and he and he can't be casually racist and he's been more casually racist than he ever thought. That's not where this movie goes either. Right. This movie does not go in that direction with it. It it presents them as a dichotomy rather than as a dialectic Mm -hmm. as sort of two different aspects of 007, right? Two different ways that 007 can exist fully, 
right? One of my favorite things about this movie, well, two of my favorite things about this movie are that, um, one, it is brought up to Bond numerous times that uh, the new 007 wants to be acknowledged as the new 007 and doesn't want James Bond to be acknowledged as the 007 and expects him to fight her for it. Right. Uh-huh. Like she expects him to come into the office and take away her job title because he's an old white guy. Right. And and there's every reason to believe that he would do this. And I think there are other people in the room who expect this to happen. And it is an interesting characteristic of James Bond that he never brings it up. Uh-huh. Even in the end, when they decide to call him J- 007 again, you kind of get the sense that it's for them. It's like uh-huh. we're on a James Bond mission, guys. Like, let's let's give him the honorary wings one more time. Right. Sure. Um, He never says, like, you know, I was 007 when you were in diapers. No. And and why does he say it? It's not because he's progressive. It's because he's dead inside. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing you don't get about James Bond. He doesn't care about any of those things because he has a single minded focus on killing the bad guys, achieving his mission and like enjoying small pleasures along the way. Right. Like like James Bond is. Such and again, uh, we were talking a little bit. We talked a little bit about Steve McQueen, right? I joked about this being a movie about Steve McQueen. In this movie, Bond is an old school action hero in the sense that he is a man who has put aside his own emotional life and his own kind of living in order to do his job, which is to be outside of society and enact violence on people. Sure. And one of the ways in which he has he exhibits a virtue associated with doing this is that he does not. He is secure enough in himself that he is not threatened by the fact that the 007 title is now held by a black woman. Right. Right. Like he is so self-assured in his devotion to what he sees as what he wants to do. And he is so totally separated from his sort of hedonistic enjoyment of his own life that he doesn't care. Right. And I thought that was brilliant. It's very subtle, but it thought it was brilliant. Just maybe their reason to do it was just we don't want him to engage with it because there's no way to do it right. But the fact that she sort of tests him and he doesn't challenge her on that and he totally appreciates her as an agent but he doesn't like go fawning over her and thank her for things like he's like oh you took long enough and and they also there's the two different times right where it's like she's you don't think she's going to be here but she is versus oh you think she's going to be here but she isn't right and there's all these little moments where nomi 007 is engaged in absurd situations right but they're exactly the situations that Bond would have been involved in in a movie. Mm. Like she's just she's just the Pierce Brosnan Bond, right? She's the next. She's a different 007. Right. But it's like, oh, how is 007 going to get out of this hotel in Cuba where she's surrounded by hostile paramilitary people and has been double crossed and abandoned by the spy that she thought she was helping? Oh, she's 007. So of course she's going to get out. Yeah. Right. And so I bring this up here because you brought up the other Nazi scientist who says to her, like, we could exterminate your entire race, which is at the point where the movie has started, you know, blooming, as it were. Right. Showing you its true colors, which is that, like, they are fighting Nazi scientists. And she, of course, does the right thing, which is kill him. Right. And tells him time to die. Right. The ghost ship moment of this movie is when she tells the the scientist that, that no, there's not no time to die. This is the time to die because I'm going to kill you because you're a Nazi scientist hatching an evil mass murdering racist genocidal super weapon. Right. And she gets to do that in this movie. And it's not like she gets to. I say it wrong. She's, she's 007. That's what she does. Right. That's what she does. And so there's a dichotomy of um of of the two 007s and the and the sort of old and the new right in the sense of like 
um, not the old and the new, but the Bond 007 versus the not Bond 007. Uh-huh. Um, and these two different characters, right? And I thought that was really fun and cool. Um, and then you get to the dialect, right? Which is not, you know, uh, oh man, is our Bond inspector two sides of the same coin? Is Bond going to feel like Ernst Blomfeld knows him the way other people don't? And he's going to, no. That's not this this movie where he goes and kills a Nazi scientist and which he says to his face, like, you are a small man, like all the small men before you. Right. And I'm, I'm going to kill you. Right. That's my job. I came here to kill you. Um, and and he, there's no point in which he's like, well, Remy Malik, you kind of have a good point. Right. Like, oh, man, this you're, you're giving these big speeches about us being the same. Right. And it's like at no point is Bond like convinced. Right. But the real dialectic in this movie, and I know I've been monologuing for a lot and I should dialogue more, is like. That conversation that happens, I think, twice, I don't remember exactly who has it. One of them is between old Bond and new Bond, where someone says to him, you know, that the world has changed, right? And Bond says, I don't think the world has changed that much. And and it's it's one of the only times I can remember where somebody has said that, and it's been credible. Mm. And it's been from a place of knowledge. Like, contrast this to the Mitchells versus the Machines, which we did on the podcast, which is like – terrible in terms of how it explores this question right it's like there's the dad who insists the world doesn't change and the child who insists the world changes and they force a a a a cluster of inane unlikely things in order to validate that the dad has anything to contribute to the obvious fact that the world is fundamentally different than what he thinks it is right but they throw him a bone because they don't this is not a movie where we humiliate our fathers all the time only 70 percent of the time right this is not a movie where we go out here to, like, call old people stupid. So we throw them a bone and we make them feel good about themselves. But we know what's happening. We know that he's out of it and he's not with it. Bond knows what's going on, right? And so there's a really sort interesting – before he sort of cottons on to something before a lot of people – now, I, I mean, to a certain extent, it's plot – you know, yeah. uh, it's plot stuff. Like it's, it's a little, as you know, Bob, uh, bit, but like, you know, uh, well, you know, as you know, M, you've been developing this secret weapon in secret <laughs> for a long time. Uh, yeah. but that like, you know, that, that, uh, that, that is interesting. Like, because the, the things, what, what are the things that are different? You know, uh, we don't, what, what does M say? Like, we don't, the, the, he says, like, the, our, our enemies are in a miasma or they're in a, a fog or in a smoke. And, and like, smoke is a big visual, um, yeah. uh, you know, motif in, in this film, uh, to the point where there's a lever in Bond's first tricked out fancy car that says smoke on it. And he <laughs> pushes it up all the way. Uh, and he, he, uh, he escapes in a, in a cloud of smoke. And it, it happens again. And the kind of the misty forest of Norway where the fog or the dew or the condensation or the way, you know, yeah. whatever it is, is like, you know, kind of obscured vision. And then the, the amount of stuff, like even in the first scene where kind of vision, uh, vision is obscured, um, by the ice that the little girl is trapped under, mm-hmm. um, before, uh, 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 horticulturalist and no drama enthusiast, uh, Remy, uh, Mr. Robot Malik comes to, uh, comes to her aid unexpectedly that, that like, um, so this, this idea of like, uh, 
we can't quite see our our ideas are are indistinct you know our our sense of what's right i guess is indistinct our sense of like uh, being able to kind of make out figures in the mist is indistinct but that's i i don't know that's always been true like bond has always dealt with kind of like secret identities and with with subterfuge and with disguise um well okay what is it that we're dealing with non-state actors or you know, stuff. Is that how the world has changed? That's how the world it changes in a lot of action movies that involve like governmental spying. Well, no, Bond has been dealing with non-state actors the whole, you know, the whole time. There yeah. are, you know, the, since, since earliest days. So that's not that, you know, that's not it either. Like it's, I, I think it's the, the, the world has changed people like fail to make a con, convincing case you know for for what has changed for what has changed in the world and so i think that the deck is kind of stacked against against them um yeah you know in 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 this particular movie but like what is at stake when we say the world has changed uh no i don't think it hasn't changed that month much and what are we actually referring to like what what are we referring to on a surface level and then what is being transacted at a deeper level when we say you know the world has changed the world the world hasn't changed that much yeah i think and all of you said what you said is so dead on. Right. I, I would add that, like, it seems kind of like the thing that's changed is just that Rafe, that Britain is less powerful. Right. But that's not what they. Yeah. Think are you de- are right? you are is the desk bigger or are you smaller? Yeah, so exactly. I know that no, the, the desk is the same size. Yeah. Desk is the yeah. Country country. The the island. Great. Great Britain. The, you know, yeah. United Kingdom of Great Britain, Northern Ireland, like uh, England, Scotland, Wales. That that landmass is is as big as it ever was. And yet somehow. <laughs> For whatever reason, (laughs) 2021 seems a little smaller. Exactly, exactly. So I would say that there are that that there the thing that is that is not changed. I think that people think has changed. Well, the first the first proposition is you can't get in the room with the enemy anymore. And and I guess Bond's response is you can't, and you can't because you're not good enough. Right. Like like the the idea that the enemy is this abstract person and doesn't exist in real life is is not the case. The enemy does exist. They're just really clever and they're capable of hiding who they are because aesthetically they don't look like who they were. Right. Like Remy Malik doesn't look like a Nazi scientist. Mm. Right. In fact, he doesn't look like much of anything. Doesn't have um, a single monocle, you know. It's right. A, exactly. You know? And it's like and furthermore, you know, like like so. OK, so the two moments where Bond figures out that something's up. Right. Because I feel like Bond heads into most of the movie with an idea that something's up that the other people don't have. Right. And the two moments are he mentions it when Felix and Nomi approach him separately about going after the same person and aren't aware that they're both talking to him. Right. And he's like, that's not good. Right. It's not good when the CIA and MI6 are going after the same person and they're not talking to each other. And you could say, well, you know, Bond, the world has changed. It's a multipolar world now. You know, like the America doesn't lead anything. It's not a hegemony. And it's like, well, you could say that. But what the real fact is, is that, like, there's a Nazi who's in on the operation who is deliberately interfering with it. Right. And so, like, um, which they eventually sniff out and uses their major clue to to track down and kind of continue the operation. Um, so De Bond is right in saying that, like, it, this is not just a thing that you should just accept as normal, right, as the new normal that, like, America and Britain don't cooperate on things. Right. Um, right. We should you should see that and think something is bad and wrong. And, of course, one thing that Bond would not say is new is the idea of something being bad and wrong. 
right? Like lots of things that Bond has dealt with have been bad and wrong. And so the notion of like, man, the world is changing because it used to be really great and now it's all falling apart. It's like the world is always falling apart for James Bond. You right. know, he's, you know, that's the case. And the other moment is when he's in the car with Madeline. And I love this scene so much. And maybe you have more to say about it too, because you already mentioned it. The scene is so rich. The scene with the car, which, which on the surface is just such a, you could see that being a super corny Pierce Brosnan scene where the main point is to show off the new Mercedes they've decided to advertise or BMW right. instead of Aston Martin or whatever. Um, but it's wonderful because the car pulls in and it's framed by the old bell, right? And the bell tolls for whom the bell tolls, right? Um, it tolls for thee. This is the big bell that's tolling for James Bond because his time is limited and the world is changing and he's in his new car. So so part of what's being adjudicated when we say the world is changing, or what's being suggested is being adjudicated is specifically that that James Bond is quintessentially misogynistic. Chauvinistic, retrograde, patriarchal, hedonistic power fantasy wish fulfillment, uh -huh. right? That the main point of James Bond is that he makes white men feel good about themselves at the expense of feeling better than everybody else and also feel good about drinking a lot and having sex as, mm -hmm. as super cool things. Right. Which, of course, they those things don't need an agent. Uh, they tend to do well, you know, without much promotion, but they get it nonetheless. Right. Um, and, and so, like, that's the sort of thing that I think we need to immediately see as what's being called into question, as well as the sort of bespoke nature of the james bond filmmaking franchise over the course of the last however many years as it sort of moves on inevitably toward it won't be made for big theatrical productions as much anymore it'll be made for streaming the amazon purchase wasn't completed yet so they didn't know exactly what was going to happen when they made this movie but they knew that this was i think they knew this was probably the last big mgm bond movie that they were going to be able to make the way that they've made the last bunch of them Right. And so it's sort of like after this bond will be different. We may not have the sort of authentic, real, super expensive antique car. This might be the last time you see this car used for real in all the future movies. It might be CGI if it exists at all. Right. Because mm -hmm. this car costs like five million dollars. Um, and so but the car is there is this pristine object framed in the bell of like looming time. And also James Bond is getting older. Right. And and uh, and he, he gets older eventually. Right. Um, if he's a human. And the idea that you can't be, you know, the, the Daniel Craig James Bond is very kinetic and very physical and isn't going to be able to keep doing his job if he's super old. Right. It's just not going to work. Um, you know, maybe the Sean Connery Bond can do that in Thunderball because people run slower back then and he could just go and like goes clap. But he need, but, you know, Daniel Craig needs to be able to jump a motorcycle 30 feet vertically into the air. Um, and you can't necessarily do that when your hips don't work. Um, but the point being that, like. All the gunmen close in around this car, right? And, and and the gunmen, of course, are the sort of allies. Are they the allies of the bell, right? Are they like the encroaching mortality that's going to finally get James Bond? And they assault not him, but they assault the car, right? Which is this metaphor for like his lifestyle. Or it's a symbol for his lifestyle, for the method of filmmaking, for the history of film as distinct from you know movies and streaming and other methods of visual medium. And they're shooting and shooting and shooting to try to destroy it. But the car is just too strong. And why is the car able to, you know, to stand up to that level of high-powered gunfire. It's James Bond's car. That's what it does. If if not, it's just just as you said, James Bond has been dealing with non-state actors for at this point, you know, 50 years, right? Um, 
his car has also been bulletproof for that entire time. Right. Right. So like, don't worry about it. Don't, don't worry about not even not even hand wave it away. It has been firmly established that whatever car James Bond is in has a very good chance of being extremely bulletproof. Um, but what does James Bond care about in this moment? Right. In this moment where he's about to pull the smoke. Right. And the smoke of not being able to see the enemy, which is thematically related to other things happening in the movie and sort of foreshadowing this problem that everybody's facing of being unable to figure out how the Nazis are operating in their in their international web of intrigue. Um, what is he paying attention to? Why does he sit there and like let them shoot him and let them shoot him? Right. When he could have shot back immediately. Um, now, you could say, well, he's waiting for them all to get close enough so that he can murder all of them with his Gatling guns, which mm. is possible. I mean, I don't know. Did you ever read on that scene as to what he was trying to do? I I felt like the, the conflict had to do with him kind of processing some stuff about his girlfriend. <laughs> yes, exactly. He was watching her. Yeah. Right. I, th- I think that, I think that what James Bond is doing in that moment is he is watching this woman to see if she's legitimately scared that these guys are going to kill her. Because if she is, then maybe she's not part of their operation. Mm. But if she isn't, she's definitely part of their operation, right? Because the the core, the initial problem here is that James Bond goes on vacation in his own name, checking into a hotel, and then is flabbergasted that anybody knows where he is, which seems perplexing. Uh, but he goes on vacation with his girlfriend, and uh, and. Uh, although I guess that's five years earlier and a bunch of other stuff happens in the intervening time. But he's on vacation with her. He his girlfriend has been encouraging him to go visit his ex-girlfriend's grave or his ex-partner's grave from Casino Royale. I think they were in love. Right. And uh, and she's been pushing him to do it because she thinks it would be good for him. He goes there. It's an ambush. Right. He, they attempt to assassinate him. Spectre attempts to assassinate him, he thinks. Um, they do, actually. Spectre attempts to assassinate him. He then immediately suspects that this girl is a double agent. Um, because that's what happens in James Bond movies and it's happened to him a lot of times. Right. And so when he's being shot at, he kind of realizes that she's also in jeopardy, which is not how these things usually work. Right. Like, you know, if it's Xenia on a top, isn't really scared that her henchmen are going to kill her. Um, Mm. right. Like, uh, and so, so he's sort of piecing together that like, this is different, right? Something about this situation is different. Um, which is, I think, why this this is uh, he goes in the situation understanding that, like, the enemy isn't impossible to find. They are merely hard to find and mm-hmm. like and difficult to track down. And we also have access to the tools that the enemy has access to. So I guess what I would say is the thing that isn't that hasn't changed is, well, first of all, a very realist view of if not the the intentions behind political and parapolitical actions such as terrorist attacks um but their oper- but their but their way that they are carried out right you do not assume that somebody you've never met doesn't want to kill you right like the world is a hostile place that's full of different people with different agendas mm. they are always playing games against each other there's always somebody out there trying to kill people um, and there are certain sorts of common motivations they tend to have, but you can't necessarily assume that you know who they are or what they want uh, until you confirm it to them by uh, getting captured and having them tell you. Uh, right? Like it's just sort of how it works. Um, so yeah, so that's what I would say. The, that that's like that that's what hasn't changed is this idea that like are you really so shocked that there is a you know highly technologically advanced you know, Nazi scientist in a secret island off the coast of Japan who has a super weapon, right? Like, why do you think that that's different? 
people have had nuclear weapons for a long time, chemical weapons, you know, nerve gases, right? Like dirty bombs, all sorts of stuff. I mean, James Bond has certainly dealt with sillier things, right? Like, you know, our gold figure, he's going to radiate all the gold in Fort Knox, right? <laughs> like what, what about that is fundamentally different, right? Um, other than of course the gold, right? Like, uh, then what Remy Malik is doing in the sense of like, it's weird. It doesn't make any sense at first, but then once you get to know the guy, it's like, oh yeah, of course it makes sense. He has a very clear agenda, right? Um, and in the case of guys like Remy Malik, it's a pretty dumb agenda, right? Because, um, you know, it's this sort of, it's, it's so inhuman, right? James Bond knows, meets people face to face. So sorry, I pontificated on that a lot, Matt. Um, no, that's, that, that's okay. I feel like, I feel like at, given we're inspired by the two hour and 40 minute length of this film <laughs> to just, you know, it, it is, it is so, uh, it is so complex and it has, um, you know, it has this, has this talking in, in five paragraph essays. I apologize. Um, no, do you like the pillow scene? J- James, James Bond never apologizes. That's talk about you know? the Downton Abbey moment. What was your thinking about the Downton oh, Abbey? Oh well, I so the the Downton Abbey moment relies on uh, a scene where people are not doing whatever it is they do, right? That relies <laughs> right. relies on a scene where they're they're not, you know, I don't know, they they're not like dealing with the issue of uh, at hand in a straightforward way. Uh, they're talking about, you know, I don't know, the hedgerows at the vicar's house or something like that and it's <laughs> like, would you say his hedgerows are straight or are they crooked? You know? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's a terrible example, but like it's that it's it's that oblique uh an indirect discourse drink about the uh you know about the main plot the the main kind of theme of the episode and in this everyone's spying very hard all the time like every yes. everyone's very you know like i'm like i'm daniel craig i'm a i am a you know even when i'm relaxing i am a single taut muscle uh you know, uh, or, uh, I am, uh, I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm Rami Malik. I'm, I'm always blowing up the war. A, B, K, E. A, always B, B, K, E, killing everyone. Always B, <laughs> killing everyone. Yes. And that, you know, that like, uh, that, or, or, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, moody, conflicted psychologisting so hard right now, you know, or I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm crazy blowfelding so hard. And so in order to have a Downton Abbey moment, there would, there would have to be a thing where they all like, you know, I don't know, go to a fun fair or something like that. And be I like, felt like there, there my were goodness, <laughs> this, til- this tilt a world seems off kilter to me. <laughs> I, w- I would say that there were two moments. There are a couple moments that stand out to me as sort of like that. But you're right. I mean, you're essentially right about this movie where so much of this movie is loaded with things that are sort of mission critical that they don't really take much of a break to just sort of chill. And there, and, um, a, and a lot of the dialogue is written in this kind of short, you know, kind of gnomic uh, aphoristic way where it's like, okay, this is like heavily thematic dialogue. Like, you know, it's, uh, it could be like, well, his, you know, are we ever really anywhere? Or, uh, that's not yeah. a line from the movie, but that's the style of, of that's, speech in the movie. That's, like, that's, that's from James Bond, Rise of Skywalker. You're, you're, are we ever really anywhere? Your secrets. <laughs> 
Um, Where yeah. are you, Bond? Are we ever really anywhere? I'm in a volcano. Your secrets <laughs> are, you know, what? Uh, uh, Leia say to you're only as sick as your secrets. Well, my <laughs> secrets are your, uh, yeah, you know. So yeah. I don't know. It was, a, it was the the dialogue was written in a in a very, um, it, you know, it, I don't know. It was. <laughs> It's the Michelangelo style where they, they remove everything from the block of text that is not the line. Yes, yes, yes. They just they just use the pie to generate a random, huge, right. like indefinitely long block of text and just carved away all the wrong words. And we're left with no time to die, with no comma time to die. And then they took out the comma. Um, one, per, one, one dimension I want to call out because I just loved it in this movie is the daughter. I love James Bond's daughter, the little yeah. kid. And and that is not something I expected to say. The little kid is so great. And I, there were two moments for me, well, three moments with the little kid that stood out. One was sort of like, kind of, I don't, this was the kind of thing where I felt like there was something meaningful in it, but maybe there wasn't and I was just making it up, which is when Bond cooks breakfast for the little kid, right? <laughs> and they're watching some inane French television show, right? Uh, I think our Norwegian television show, probably. I don't even remember, um, but it wasn't in English. So I don't understand what's going on. And and I'm like, what is he going to make for this kid for breakfast? What, what does Bond know about kids, right? Um, and he makes her crepes, right? I think she – I noticed it. It's like, oh, and she's eating a crepe. Uh, and I'm like, well, of course Bond knows how to make crepes. He's probably made crepes for a lot of women in his life, <laughs> right? And just as I have that that thought, it cuts to the mom just standing right next to him, right? Which is sort of like like these – there's almost sort of like these are the crepes you made me the first time we made love, right? And he's making them for his daughter instead, and he's like staring at her. And it's sort of funny, right, where I think it, what he is, of course, trying to figure something out, which is he's trying to figure out if she's actually his daughter yep. um, by looking at his sort of – her sort of phenotypically expressed characteristics. Her her deep blue eyes yeah but i thought it was funny that it's like james bond makes a sexy breakfast for his daughter uh because that's the only kind of breakfast he knows how to make but also it totally works right which is this notion of like yes the world has changed james bond is older now he has a kid he's still james bond right and like and being james bond still works uh it's not like being james bond has become this horrible liability or this big joke Right. It turns out that like being a cool dude who makes a cool breakfast also works when you're a dad. Yeah. Um, granted, of course, you don't want to be so drunk. But uh, and like there's other moments like that, like the moment where uh, the whole thing with Anna de, de Armas. Right. Where it's like she does. She, she's like, I clearly don't want to have sex with you because you're an old man. Right? Like which which is pretty funny. And that's, I think, the only real moment like that I remember from the movie. But then they go on to do exactly what Bond and a girl in a sling, uh, like you say, girl, Bond girl, woman in a slinky dress do in every Bond movie, which is like, you know, you know, stake the joint out, infiltrate, you know, identify and destroy and escape. Um, but but the other things with the little kid, I'll I'll do this third one second, which another one that expresses this idea, right, which is that even if Daniel Craig isn't Bond and even if Bond isn't Bond, right? Even if we're going into sort of a death and return of Superman where we're deconstructing the bondness uh. of 007 and we're saying like, okay, there's going to be a 007. It's Nomi, right? There's going to be a Bond. It's his daughter, right? And and the Bond is like Bond and the 007 is like 007 and they're sort of both like this guy, but he's not going to be there, right? And and but the the movie is sort of adjudicating is there a future in in that complex of things? Is the world changed so much? That if we strip away everything about Bond that's hedonistic, chauvinistic, patriarchal, 
white supremacist, all that stuff, is there still something worth watching and making and learning about and enjoying? Um, and, and I think the movie is arguing yes. But the moment is when the little girl is being carried by the thug, right? The sort of henchman, the 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 supervillain henchman, right? Which is what he says on his uh, LinkedIn profile, yep. right? Which is like Boris, 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 uh, supervillain henchman um, skills. You know, you are Boris, Boris, <laughs> Boris is is as good as like a Captain a Captain Michael Ironside of the USS yeah. Ironside. Yes. And it's like you know, oh, you know, your buddy Vlad, 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 you know. Has uh, has endorsed you for skills in night vision goggles. Right? Like, <laughs> you're really moving up in the Who world. Who would you go to? Who would you go to if you had questions about uh, you know uh, uh, about dropping your weapon at an inopportune yeah. moment? Would you yeah. go to to yeah, Boris? Well, for dropping to, my to weapon, Vlad? for yelling at someone else to drop their weapon, yeah, to Boris, to Vlad, to Vlad, <laughs> to Ilya, or to uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, um, uh, or to, or to Krang, or some sort of like fake name. <laughs> so the girl's um, being carried by Boris, 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 and she realizes that she doesn't have her stuffed rabbit, which is a great moment in any story where it happens. Yep. I am I am a hundred percent on board with children realizing that they've lost a stuffed animal and it causing a major plot point. Right? It's like, oh no, we can't leave the space station without Bobo. Right? Like, we got to go back and fight the alien, right, or whatever. Um, and. Uh, and she wants the the Nazi the 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 he's not a, he's not I mean he's a Nazi thug but he's also a supervillain henchman to let her go back and get her pet rabbit and he refuses because of course his job would sort of dictate that he refused demands from uh, bonds that he happens to be carrying through his his lair regardless of their age gender or uh, you know verbal acuity um, and she bites him right she like bites him super hard and then runs off right. And that's just such a lovely little microcosm of the Bond experience, yep. isn't it? Where it's like she's been captured. Bond has been – so this is what happens. Bond has been captured. Bond is in the supervillain's lair. He is he is no longer in the presence of the supervillain. He is being transported by the supervillain's henchmen. He distracts them with some sort of inane question like, you know, I have to go to the bathroom or like what's that over there, right, or something. And then he like busts them and runs away. Right. It's like it's like such a wonderful little it's like when I watch a cooking show and they're like, this is a deconstructed sandwich. And I'm like, that's a sandwich <laughs> or it isn't right. Like, don't tell me that it's special because it's deconstructed. I, I, let me be the judge of whether this is a sandwich or not. It's a wonderful little bond plot where she she does exactly what her dad would do in this situation. Mm. And again, and it's sort of like it's absurd to think that this is hereditary. Right. Um, but but of course, this is about lineage. Right. And about um. And in, in, in a broad it's about sense, a, a proud you know? tradition. Exactly. And it's it's about it, what it really is about, I think. Well, I mean, of course, everything's about a lot of things. So nothing's about one thing. But it's about this this sort of separation. I guess you could say it's a dichotomy. Right. Of um, James Bond and 007. Right. Like, what are the things that 007 does? And what are the things that James Bond does? And uh -huh. James Bond is kind of a cad. Right. And so he does sort of like. Sean Connery esque things, right? Such as like sweet talk henchmen to letting him go and punching them in the face, right? Uh, running through, running madcap through enemy bases. The James Bond thing he does is throw the Nazi scientist into the pit of super weapons so that he dies in his own creation, yeah. right? Like that's his, that's the license to kill. So, so at any rate, I thought that that was sort of a, sort of a good example of kind of what the movie is doing in terms of like calling the question to Bondness and endorsing Bondness. Right. And even daring everybody 
to doubt their sincerity by nuking Bond from orbit, <laughs> like by like by not from orbit, but like firing, you know, cluster bombs at Bond until he is assuredly dead. Well, yeah. And Despite, that's I mean, you know, it was sort of inter- it was interesting that like the idea that he chooses to die because he's he's got this contagion. Right. Yeah. He's got this, you know, and it will eventually one way or another, even if he stays apart from her, like the idea of these nanobots is something plot, 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 sciencey, sciencey, sciencey. Uh, it's like a disease that passes from person to person, uh, not harming anyone except the person it's targeted to and it will kill them. And yes. these particular ones will kill anyone in their family as well. So the, right. the, um, you know the the uh so that that uh Lisa do and her uh and her daughter uh Bond's daughter are doomed if he yeah. you know if he gets off the island and you know to to a certain extent like the the bondness right like um the, it's the 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 bondiest thing to do <laughs> you know <laughs> is to sort of is to sort of blow up is to sort of blow up bond right is to to uh not say to kind of not stay in the relationship you know <laughs> even though he's like committed to the relationship and and he's in love now right like the the uh the 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 contagion is love you know and that like um the fact that he says that he says uh i love you um and then uh you know of uh, uh he, he she's your daughter and he says i know clear reference to star wars there and yeah, that, yep. that that uh, that that's his last words on earth <laughs> is yeah. you know i know and that yeah. like he's uh uh and that he he elects to get he elects to get blown up rather than sort of posing a um posing a posing a risk to her and that like uh, at that uh, that that moment he is, you know, the, the kind, it is a, a summa bondo logica, you know, a, a, it's, it's a, it's a, an apotheosis, um, sort of, sort of moment. And yeah. even for that, for that, he has climbed to the highest place. You know, he could go, he could go down in the, uh, in the bowels of the thing and just, you know, d- uh, die as spoiler alert, Jamie and Cersei do, you know, when, when <laughs> yeah. the red keep collapses. Uh, or he can climb to the highest mountain with a, with a view, a commanding view of everything, everything around him, you know, and go out with some style. It's sort of the, the, the bondiest, uh, the bondiest thing to do. Pete, we've, we've, we've sort of reached our time and it's time maybe for us to go out with style. Do you have a, uh, do, do you have a final bond observation, uh, that you want to, to throw on the pile, throw on the bond fire? Man. I mean, I just got chills because I just had a realization about this movie. Tell me. That I'm going to share with you. I do want to say that I regret that we didn't get to talk about the Blofeld scene and all the, like the hand with the, with the toxin on it and the way that it was shot. Right. And how wonderfully suspenseful that was. Yeah. Or also the third scene with the girl where the pillow gets thrown in the air and gets shot, which was another wonderful piece of cinema in terms of like telling the story by creating the tension, by giving you the information without showing you the thing. Right. Um, But putting that all aside, I just realized the literary reference at the end of this movie, because, of course, Bond, when he is climbing to the mountaintop for his apotheosis in fire, uh, find something, right? Do you remember what he finds, Matt? 
uh, is it? Wait, wait. Is this Littlefinger? Is this the climb? Is this? Is he whole? Is he on? Oh no, the climb? better than Game of Thrones. It's much more important. <laughs> much more important and mature work than Game of Thrones, Matt. He finds Dudu, right? He finds oh, the rabbit. He does. Yes, he does find the rabbit. Yeah, he finds the rabbit. Now, do you know any stories about a rabbit that's infected with a contagion? And because the rabbit's infected with the contagion, it has to be burned. Oh, but because oh. the rabbit is loved, burning the rabbit creates an apotheosis where the rabbit becomes real. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm not making this up, am I? No. That, that, that in the final moments of his life, James Bond becomes the Velveteen Rabbit. He's the Velveteen Rabbit. <laughs> He's the story that we love so much that we want him to be real. And he becomes he became real because we loved him. Oh and, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> and it, well, that's 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 like that's very that's very sweet. Did you recognize the quote that Ray Fines read out at the at the end of the I thing? looked it up. Was it Kipling or something like that? Or no, close. It's Jack London. Oh, okay. Um, the irony no, not, of it, I think, not close, different, 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 era, different, 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 uh, if all you care about is when a person was alive and the color of their skin and their gender, it's very close to retrograde. But if you care about literally anything else about their life, it's a very, or their profession, right? He's a very different person. Of course, Jack London was a, uh, a, a wandering transient and newspaper writer who became famous for writing dog books. I guess they also both wrote famous works in which animals they're, – they're part of the early – late 19th and early 20th century – well, 19th and early 20th century animal writing uh, uh, movement, right, where they're like – along with Beatrix Potter, along with the Velveteen Rabbit, right, this sort of uh, idea of these stories of animals – uh, that sort of reclaimed fable in some way. Jack London, writer of Call of the Wild. I believe, and I was not able to confirm this as much as I would have liked, but I believe the irony is that the quote isn't actually from a book. Mm. Uh, and, and the quotation, rather. I think the quotation was from a newspaper writer who interviewed Jack London when he was old and near the end of his life and kind of asked him about thoughts or regrets he had. Uh, about uh, now that he looks back at the end of his life, kind of like, what was he proud of? What would he still like to do? That side of thing. And his response was the proper function of man is to live, not to exist. I shall not waste my days in trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. Mm. And Jack London has an autobiographical book called the road. It is by far at least the third most famous book called the road, um, probably lower on the list, but it's an autobiography. I think of his days as a transient. One might call him a hobo. Um, and you can buy that book with that quote on the cover. But I did a search in a – I think it's because it's public domain at this point because it's written in like 1910. And I found it on like Project Gutenberg, and I searched it, and I couldn't find that quote in that book. So I think it's from a newspaper article. Um, but it's oh. by the guy who wrote White Fang. Got and, it. And uh, the Wild. Yeah. Yeah, and Call of the Wild, yeah. Um, who is different from Kipling? Um, yes, who, yes, who yes. wrote uh, uh, who wrote inspirational poems like one called "If," which uh, you know you should read unironically, as though it has no I, no subject. Did you also think he was going to read "If"? Do you think he was just going to just bust out singing "Hallelujah" by Leonard Cohen? <laughs> <laughs> if only that would have been uh, that would have been a fitting that would have been a, fi- a fitting way 
to end. But uh, he doesn't really care for music, do you? Um, all right, let's uh, let's leave it there, Pete. Thanks very much for uh, for podcasting with me. Thanks to everybody who listened. I think we we uh, enjoyed this. And we'll enjoy talking about it uh, in the comments. We'll enjoy talking about it on our Discord server uh, as well, which is uh, a link to join that is in in the show notes. We've been having fun on on there, um, chatting about the uh, the podcast every week and just whatever uh, whatever comes to mind to to talk about it's a, a fun way and i guess sort of a successor to what our our comments section used to be where your smart funny friends from the internet come together till uh till next time when we'll be back with more overthinking it podcast you can uh, visit us there or on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve. James Bond will return. Sort of. <laughs>